0: Sixty-nine years ago today, the State of Israel was declared, and for most Jews, it marked an actualization of their hopes and their yearnings for a long time. For the first time in 2011 years, since the arrival of Pompey and the Romans in the year 63 before the Common Era, Jews had sovereignty over their homeland, the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the land from which they were twice expelled. And certainly, of course, it marked the fulfillment of a half century of political Zionist aspirations as dreamed up or conceived and put into play by Herzl in the 1890s. And I think that it wasn't just Herzl and the political Zionists who felt like their dreams were being actualized. It was also a major moment uh, in the destiny of religious Zionism, which is a millennia-long hope for a spiritual reawakening as foretold in the Torah, perhaps with faint rumblings of the Messianic era getting underway as well. So tonight... I want to discuss a history of Zionism, the story of political and religious destiny, and I want to probe these questions. Number one, what are the origins and what are the tenets of religious and political Zionism? How did they uh, coalesce in the founding of the state and the early developments of the state? How do they inform uh, the current, the modern realities and challenges facing the state and also uh, now what? You know, the state was founded 69 years ago. It's almost 70 years. The state is now an economic and military and technological superpower. What now? We're a Zionism in the 21st century. And to answer these questions, I want to start with the history and the batch story of the historic and religious connection that Jews have had to the land. And also, I want to look at the story, I want to trace the political coattails upon which the shared dream of our people for so long rode towards settling the land and forming a state. Now, you don't have to go very far to find in the Torah a mention of Israel. In fact, if you learn Torah with Rashi, you'll find a mention to Israel and the Jews settling and establishing dominion over the land in the very first verse. Rashi, very famous Rashi on Genesis 1.1. Rashi asked the question, if the Torah is a book of laws, as we know the word Torah means instruction, so it's a book of laws, and you read all of Genesis, you don't find many laws. You find stories. And the first laws come in mass in chapter 12 of Exodus. So Rashi asked the question, why do we start there? Why does the Torah give us the whole backstory of of Genesis and creation and Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, descent to Egypt? start Start from when it starts getting relevant to us. And Rashi famously tells us that this is going to be our deed to the land. We're going to come to Israel. We're going to claim it as ours. And the indigenous people are going to say, wait a minute, slow down. We're here before you. And we're going to tell him, look at the Torah. Who created the world and who owns everything? God. He created it. And look at Genesis. He promises it to us. Here we are to claim what is rightfully ours. That's Rashi, Genesis 1.1. What Rashi is essentially saying is that the objective of the Torah from Genesis through Uh, a good chunk of Exodus, is specifically, so we have Israel. That's how central our connection to the land is. And of course, you read Parshas Lech Lecha, we meet Abraham. First thing he's told, go to Israel. He gets to Israel, he traverses the land, and God says, this land I will give to you and your descendants. And that's told him multiple times, and it's repeated to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, Isaac, He's the one who's never allowed to leave. Abraham comes to Israel. Isaac is born and stays in Israel. Jacob is born in Israel and he has to leave. And eventually the whole story of the Torah is getting back to where we were, right? We, we were in Israel with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they were forced to leave to go to Egypt. And then there was a long trip getting back home. And this Torah ends on the doorstep of Israel. We're about to walk in, cliffhanger, go to the next book. And read the story of our conquest and settlement of the land. But you could look at the Torah then as essentially a story about Israel. And we know the story. They, we had the Egyptian exile, and Joshua, of course, is the one who leads us into the land. And we're told in Jewish sources that the land really is more than just territory, a good place to live and to raise animals and to have a agriculture and to have a country and a society, there's a certain spiritual nature that the land has. Uh, For example, read the verse uh, that Eine Hashem, the eyes of God are always overseeing the land of Israel. And the sources tell us that our world only exists because God has a pipeline through which he gives vitality to this world. We assume this world just goes on Until it stops. But the answer is no. It's just it has to have a continual flow of energy from God for it to exist. And every country, we're told further, has its own angel who filters God's vitality for that particular country. So if you remember, Jacob has a battle with the man, turns out to be the angel of Esau. He's the angel who is the proxy through which God gives his vitality to that particular nation. However, the eyes of God himself, there's no filter, is over the land of Israel. And in fact, there's many mitzvahs that apply only in Israel. In fact, there's 130, a huge percentage of the mitzvahs are only possible in the land. Uh, We read in last week's Parsha about Tzaras. When you get to the land of Israel, you'll have Tzaras in your home. Ramban tells us that the laws of Tsaras only applied in the land of Israel. It's one example. My grandfather used to say, Jewish people needed 49 days before they were ready for Torah at Sinai. But they needed 40 years before they were ready for Israel. And in fact, in this week's Parsha, we read that Israel as a nation itself, it has a certain spiritual Power. We read after all the uh, instructions regarding forbidden sexual relationships, we're told, and this actually appears twice in chapter 18 and chapter 20 of Leviticus, we're told, God tells Jewish people, I want you to observe these laws, don't defile the land that you are about to inhabit. Because the land, the people that are right now in the land, they sinned in all these ways that I told you not to sin in. And the land itself vomited them out. It expelled them. And you too, that same standard of purity and holiness that the land itself demands, it applies to you as well. If you replicate the behavior of the Canaanites, you too will be disgorged from the land. What it means is that the land has a a certain sensitivity. It's incompatible with certain behavior. It has a heightened spiritual bar, so to speak, and it itself has this immune system to sin and to defilement and impurity. Very powerful idea. So, Joshua... Uh oversees the conquest of the land of Israel. There's seven nations uh, in 31 different city-states. The smallest of the seven nations is the Girgashi, and they actually fled on their own. But uh, the rest of the nation stayed, and we had war. We had a constant state of war for seven years, and then seven years of division of the land. And Joshua, of course, as all Jewish wars, he offered them peace terms. If they accepted, great. If not, it was war. And a lot of people died on their side, of course, beginning with Battle of Jericho, with the walls collapsed. Of course, you read the whole story in the book of Joshua. After several years of fighting, the Jewish people, they inhabit the land. And for hundreds of years, they're there. But they haven't quite mopped up and gotten rid of all the Enemies, so the enemy combatants, so to speak. So for the first several hundred years of the Jewish people's settlement of the land, it's somewhat chaotic. And you read about this in the book of Judges. There's 16 judges from Joshua all the way to Samuel. Uh, you have Samson, of course, who's battling all the time with the Philistines. And the, you read the end of the book of Judges. It says that it, there was a certain degree of anarchy. There's no king. And every person acted upon his own conscience. Uh, so you have a story like the concubine of Givah, a terrible tragedy that befell our people. And of course, not all the land uh, was under our dominion. Jerusalem was only captured by King David. So King David is the second of the kings. You have King Saul, who does not really last very long. And then the prophet Samuel, he anoints King David, under whose leadership, 40 years of leadership, Jerusalem is captured to God doesn't allow him to build a temple, but his son Solomon, who also reigned for 40 years, he builds the temple on Temple Mount. And this is essentially Jewish people at their apex. This is the culmination of the whole Jewish history that preceded it. Like now we're in Israel. We have righteous teams. We have a united kingdom. We have a temple. We have Jerusalem. We have. Uh, suppressed all our enemies, things are great. Unfortunately, it didn't last for that long. This 80-year period, the golden era, came to a crashing halt after the death of Solomon. His son made some poor political decisions. And unfortunately, there is a schism. And the northern kingdom of Israel succeeds. And thenceforth, you have the northern kingdom of Israel led by idolatrous wicked kings, and then you have the southern kingdom of Judah, for the most part led by righteous teams. You have a temple in Jerusalem, the temple founded by Solomon, and unfortunately the northern kingdom of Israel, they build an idolatrous temple and things really spiral out of control until Sanherib and the Assyrians come, they capture the Kingdom of Israel. They send those ten tribes packing. Bring the Samaritans in their place. They go on to Judah, on, and they get stopped on the door, the doorstep of Jerusalem. Judea withstands this Assyrian onslaught, not for long. Uh, after the Assyrians come, the Babylonians, and of course Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, they capture Judea. They send the Jews, into exile. And for the first time in our history, we're out of Lent. And, of course, on the rivers of Babylon, everyone's crying, how did we get here? We were on top of the world. We had Torah, we had righteous teams, we had a temple, we had priests, we had everything. And now we have nothing. Jewish people led into chains into Babylon. Thankfully, this is a short-lived exile. After 70 years, the Jews are... Uh, ushered back, some of them at least, under the leadership of Ezra, Zerubbabel, amongst others. They start rebuilding the temple, uh, and eventually we have dual communities with the community in Israel, and the vast majority of Jews chose to stay in the diaspora in Babylon. And this is a pattern we see. Even though we know that our destiny is in Israel, well, here we are in Houston, Texas, and we're kind of happy where we are. Uh, and that really goes back to the first opportunity that Jews had to go back to Israel. And they passed. They were more comfortable in their new home. Of course, things weren't always easy. The Jews were in Israel, but then uh, they had the Persians and they had to contend with that. They had to contend with the Greeks uh, and all their offshoots, the Ptolemaic, the Seleucid Greeks, they had the Hellenists and the Sadducees. Of course, we talked about these at great length. They had the Hanukkah story where they had to fight to maintain their autonomy. And then they had the Hasmoneans. The Hasmoneans were this brief period of, of, of Jewish self-government that, that lasted until the arrival of Pompey and the Romans. In the year 63. Since the year 63 before the Common Era, since the year 63 until 1948, Jews, with the brief exception of three years in the 130s under Bar Kokhba, Jews did not have uh, sovereignty, hegemony over the land. Uh, Of course, the Jews lasted and the temple lasted for about another hundred years or so, a little more than that, under. Roman rule, Titus destroyed the temple in the year 70. There was a mass slaughter of Jews. The Jews were sent into hiding. Many Jews had to run, had to flee. They went primarily to northern Israel, but wherever they could find any refuge. And uh, the hopes and the yearnings and the dreams of Jews living in their homeland, well, appeared to be shattered. Shattered. Uh, They took Temple Mount, uh, Hadrian in the uh, second century. He actually raised, with a Z that is, he raised the mountain, lowered it, renamed the cities, forbade Jews from going into Jerusalem. It seems like the dream of a Jewish, sovereign Jewish country uh, being reestablished is shot. That's so it seemed. And if you if you look at Jewish life since then, you see that Jerusalem, that Zion, and Israel is not very far from the Jewish consciousness. For example, we have a prayer that we say throughout all times in all history about about Jerusalem. We say it three times a day. Return to your city, Jerusalem, with mercy. Dwell in it like you spoke, like you promised us. We read in Exodus, God promised to dwell amongst us. Dwell in Jerusalem. Build it speedily in our days for an eternal building. And the seed of David, the Messiah, the monarchy, establish in said Jerusalem. You'll notice we talk about Zionism as if it's a new idea. How This is Zionism. We talk about, let's go back to Zion. Let's rebuild it. But you'll notice a subtlety here. We're linking building Jerusalem with bringing God back into the mix, back into our midst. And that is the, uh, the defining characteristic of what I call religious Zionism, which is as the Torah tells us, we have a destiny to be in Israel. We'll be kicked out, yes, but we're always going to come back. And that's not just merely as a matter of convenience to have a state; it is to reach our potential, our destiny. Call it t- Tikkun Olam, if, if 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 you wish. But our destiny as a nation—it's it, about Messiah. It's about bringing God. It's about a fulfilling fulfilling Torah. And you see, Jews throughout history prayed for it many times you know we're, we have the Sefirah Omer the saying of the Omer after you say the Omer for the period between Pesach and Shavuot the period that we're in right now there's a little little blurb a little line that we say the may the merciful one return the worship the service the sacrifice of the temple to its place speedily in our days that is a prayer that's been said throughout the generations I'll give you some examples more examples We say this twice a week, may it be the will before our Father in heaven to rebuild the home of our living, which is the temple, to return his Shechina amongst us speedily in our days. And then this is a prayer that we say at the conclusion of every single Amidah prayer, we say three times a day, four times on Shabbos and holidays, five times on Yom Kippur. May it be the will before you, Hashem, our God and the God of our forefathers, that you may rebuild the temple speedily in our days, give us our portion in your Torah, and there may we worship you with fear as in the days of your and the previous years. May it be pleasing for God. So you'll notice here that there's this mix of various items that are always in our call. And our desire and our yearning and hopes for Zion, it's about Torah, it's about bringing God into our midst, it's about even fear of God. All that is part of our dreams. One more quick blessing, I I selected only a few of them. The prayers are riddled with mentions of Zion and, and returning to Israel. May it be the will before you, Hashem our God, and the God of our forefathers, that may you bring us back to our land with joy, plant us in our boundaries, bring us to Zion, your city, with song; to Jerusalem, your temple, with eternal joy. And there may we do, may we perform the sacrifices that are obligatory to us. Again, I would say that this is. Zionism, religious Zionism, if you will, or Torah Zionism. It's not an independent objective to go back to the land. Rather, it's just coupled with the return of Torah law, return of sacrifices, rebuilding the temple, re-embracing Jewish observance, and dare I say, coming of Messiah and return of the Shechina to the Jewish people. And this, in fact, is actually a mitzvah. There's a mitzvah uh, for us, an obligation to live in Israel. In fact, the Talmud tells us that this obligation is equal to all the other obligations combined. One mitzvah living in Israel is equal to the other 612. How are we allowed to be in Houston, Texas? Are we transgressing a mitzvah? Yes, maybe. But the Halach, Ram tells us, that there's four exceptions when you're allowed to leave. Number one, to study Torah, to get married, to save yourself from terrorists, and for business. That's the only way you're allowed to leave. And everyone of us really, ideally, should question, why. what are we doing here? We should be going to Israel. It's the most important, one of the most important mitzvot out there. The Talmud tells us that when the great rabbis would arrive to the boundaries of the land— they'd prostrate themselves on the floor and kiss the land they had such love of Israel i still remember uh, when i was a child we went to israel and then there was this thing you you land and bend your ear. when you get down the steps and then people would pro- would just lie flat on the ground and kiss the tarmac pretty strange but the, the, this is an ancient jewish tradition going back to talmudic times talmud tells us Someone who lives in Israel, all their sins are expunged. Moreover, mere dwelling in Israel, just walking in Israel, in the land, you walk eight feet, every eight feet that you walk is another mitzvah. Pretty incredible. And we spoke about this a little bit last time, but there is a mitzvah that is not just to live there, but also to settle the land. And to not, according to the Ramban, to not forfeit one square inch of biblical Israel. It's a mitzvah for us, collectively and then individually, to settle the land. And to not allow the land to fall into disrepair and not to give it away to our enemies. Now, you may argue that land for peace is something that we should do. Maybe, that's a good argument. But certainly, the notion that we should give it away willy-nilly, that's against the Torah. There's actually a mitzvah for us to settle the land. Indeed, as Jews motivated by Jewish ideals and Jewish religion, there has been, or there is a comprehensive obligation to go back to Israel, to live in Israel, to settle the land of Israel. It's been part of our hopes and our yearnings ever since we left, And it's not something that we invented in the 19th century. I would put that kind of as religious Zionism on one hand. What happened in the 1890s? So we know Theodore Herzl, he spearheaded the political Zionist movement uh, as a result of what he encountered the terrific or horrific anti-semitism of france in the 1890s what's interesting is that he wasn't the first one to concoct the dream of politically establishing a land in israel we spoke about uh, the bar Kokhba revolt and that was in the 130s and that was a movement as well to reconstitute jewish sovereignty over the land the ramban in the 1260s he made a huge effort to go back to Israel. Uh, After the expulsion from Spain, the 16th century marked a huge influx of Jews coming back to Israel. Uh, In the 1800s, in the the 18th century, in the 1700s, the Gona Vilna, the the unchallenged leader of the people of time, he made an effort to go to Israel. Ultimately, the trip was aborted, but his students went and they established a beachhead or a bridgehead in the land of Israel. They were there ever since. They're still there today. The reason why Jerusalem follows the customs of the going to Vilna is because the first people that planted their flag there were his students. The only place in the world that follows his, uh, his customs is Jerusalem for that reason. So Herzl wasn't the first one uh, to think of the idea of actually going about and doing it. Uh even in the 19th century, a uh, n- not a lot of people know the story, but there was an individual by the name of Mordechai Manuel Noah. He was a newspaper man, an editor, and a journalist, and a playwright from New York City. And he proposed founding a Jewish state of sorts on Grand Island. Grand Island is the largest island in the Niagara River near Buffalo, New York. And he actually purchased the land. And he planted his flag there. And he said, we're renaming this place Ararat, named after the mountain that Noah's Ark landed on. And he put a big sign. This is welcome to Ararat, a refuge for Jews. And he thought it was a brilliant idea. Uh, Absolutely no one else thought it was. And, uh, of course, the plan floundered. Uh, but there was this idea percolating in the world that it's time to do something practical about the problem of Jews, where we can never settle down in our host nation. We have to make our own. Herzl arrives on the scene in the 1890s, and he changes everything. He's the one who actually makes it a, a bona fide movement. Uh, he himself assimilated Jew from a totally non-observant background and family, a journalist from Vienna, a man of uh, tremendous intelligence, a man of willpower and energy, what we would call today stamina, a tremendously handsome person, a striking visage with this huge hipster-style beard, and he was really bothered by the Jewish problem because anti-Semitism experienced an upswing in the late uh, 18th century, and he was trying to grapple with that problem, and he came up with some solutions. He said, you know what we'll do? This is in 1890. We're going to have mass conversion to Christianity. The reason why they hate us is because we're Jews. Well, if we're not Jews anymore, if we embrace their religion, they'll love us. That was his argument in the in his diary in 1890. Now, in fact, the 19th century may have been the worst century in Jewish history because he wasn't the only one who thought of that. Over the course of the 19th century, tragically, a quarter of a million Jews actually converted to Christianity. They thought it's the only ticket to becoming a real citizen of our country is to become Christian. So someone like Benjamin Disraeli Who became Prime Minister of England, he converted to Christianity because he couldn't be a member of Parliament unless he was a Christian. Karl Marx, another Jew who was baptized at the age of six for the same reason. And Herzl, early on in his time thinking about the Jewish problem, he advocated such a solution. But there was a seismic event that upended his worldview in 1894, a French Jewish captain by the name of Alfred Dreyfus was accused falsely of treason, of selling secrets to Germany. There was fabricated, forged evidence. He was paraded through town. People were jeering at him. Death to the Jews, death to the Jews. And this is in the country where emancipation began where Napoleon famously freed the Jews from the ghetto and welcomed them into the greater populace. And where the Jews, by the way, of of France and Germany had assimilated more than any other. In the 1860s, there were less than 500 Jews that were still observant of Torah law. The vast majority of them had totally abandoned it. Reform synagogue of the 1860s prided themselves on being indistinguishable from churches. The rabbis dressed like priests. The services were held on Sundays. And there was, there, it was, you couldn't tell. You would walk by one and the other. You couldn't, you couldn't possibly tell. And in France, where Jews had embraced Christianity or had at least divested themselves of Judaism, here he sees this terrible outbreak of anti-Semitism, and he recognized that the only solution was that we have to build our own land and we have to settle our own land build our own country where we could have freedom to be Jews because there's no there's no way that Christian Europe is inhospitable to Jewry to Jews and that's not going to change so he joins this fledgling Zionist movement and being such a powerful personality he very quickly rises to the top. And he begins by writing a short little pamphlet ostensibly a letter addressed to the Rothschilds titled Der Judenstadt The Jewish State. First he talks about the problem and he says the only solution is to build our own state. And this idea with this Powerful personality at the top, it really starts to spread like wildfire. Jews were depressed all over Europe, and the conditions were ripe, and the people in place were the ones with the correct skill sets and motivation to have this idea really take off. And what's interesting about Zionism from the very beginning is that there's so many different kinds of Jews from different backgrounds and different regions and, dare I say, different levels of Jewishness who are all uniting for a common cause, for the idea of building a Jewish state in Palestine. In 1897 in Basel, Herzl convenes the first Zionist Congress, it's a smashing success, everyone's all fired up, and Herzl in his diary writes, quote, were I to sum up the Basel Congress in a word, it would be this, at Basel, I founded the Jewish state. If I said it out loud, I would be answered with universal laughter, perhaps in five years and certainly in 50, everyone will recognize this. Indeed, 51 years later, his dream was actualized with the founding of the state. From the very beginning, we see a spectrum of Zionists. You have people like Herzl, on one hand, the secular Zionists of Western Europe, people that are very assimilated, people that are very distant from any organized Judaism, They're looking to build a cosmopolitan nation, a country based upon secular humanist ideals. That's on one side of the spectrum. You have the religious Zionists who have been praying every day and hoping and yearning to go back to Israel and to bring and usher in the Messiah. And they're looking at this movement to actually bring about their desire. their goal at least be a step towards this grand plan to fulfill the prophecies of the Torah. And you have all these various Zionists in between. The religious Jews had a good reason to be wary of Herzl and his cronies. Herzl himself couldn't read Hebrew. He actually proposed German should be the language of the state. He was totally ignorant of Torah. He had a He didn't have any background, essentially, in Jewish learning uh, or practice. He himself was circumcised and had a bar mitzvah of sorts. But his only son, Hans, he gave him neither. You think about this. A Jewish leader doesn't circumcise his son and give him bar mitzvah? That was Herzl. There's even doubts now whether his wife, Julie, was even Jewish. And, of course, the religious Jews are looking at this guy He's gonna lead us. He, this is the person who's gonna help fulfill the prophecies of Deuteronomy. This is what it looks like. And of course, a lot of Jews on the religious side of the spectrum, they that was too much for them. They abandoned Zionism because of the because of the Zionists. They, they liked the idea of Zionism, they just didn't like the Zionists themselves. But the movement became very powerful, and it became powerful because people with different interests, with a common goal, united. I'll give you an example of how this difference and how this tension manifests itself. Herzl was offered by the British government a slice of land in British, imperialist Britain's East Africa. It was called Uganda and modern-day Kenya for this state. And to him, this was perfect. You have a state, it's luscious, it was, it was actually, it's elevated, so it's not like uh, you're in the e- equator and you have to live in the jungles of Africa. It, the climate was somewhat similar to Europe. Beautiful. He goes to the World Zionist Congress and says, this is it, we have our place. And the place erupts in controversy because the religion of Zionists, Zionists to them, Zionism de facto meant Palestine or Israel or Zion, whatever it is, going back to the land of our forefathers. To the secular humanists, they they just wanted to stay wherever the state was, so be it. And that, Herzl himself actually threatened to quit if this wasn't going to pass. And it did pass. It passed quite convincingly in in the vote. And they ultimately said, yes, let's go for it. To the religious Zionists, to go to East Africa and establish the state there was out of the question. Now, Herzl himself, he has somewhat of a tragic epilogue. He died at the age of 44 in 1904, before while this plan was still being considered. He's buried in Austria. And he writes in his will, I want to be buried next to my father in Austria and lie there waiting until the Jewish people take my remains to Israel. In 1949, Herzl's body was assumed and reinterred in Jerusalem in Israel. His daughter died in 1930, his son Hans uh, tragically converted to Christianity, ultimately returned to Judaism, but committed suicide. Uh, his other daughter died in the camp, and his only grandchild committed suicide, uh, jumping off a bridge in Washington D.C. in 1946. So tragically, Herzl and his descendants, none of them uh, lived to actually see uh, the states. Now, back to uh, Uganda for a second. What they did was they sent some scouts to go look at the land, and they got there and they found it teeming with lions and indigenous people who were not that keen on allowing a bunch of Jews to come and sell the lands. And the following year, 1905, the Zionist Congress voted to reject the Uganda plan for good. Now, Zionism, it really took over the Jewish world, uh, but there was very fierce opposition. Uh, and just like the Zionists themselves were comprised of a diverse group, the opposition to Zionism was also... Uh, diverse. It may sound preposterous today, but Reform Jews actually labeled Zionism as an antithetical to Jewry, uh, and the reason why is because the Reformed Jewry of the 19th century uh, they had expunged any mention of Jerusalem and Zion from their prayer books, and in ni- in 1885 in the Pittsburgh Platform where they codified what does Reformed Jewry actually believe, they wrote, quote, We consider ourselves no longer a nation but a religious community and therefore expect neither a return to Palestine nor a sacrificial worship under the sons of Aaron nor the restoration of any of the laws concerning the Jewish state. Therefore, the Reformed Jews were virulently anti-Zionism. In fact, in Houston, uh, the big reform synagogue was Beth Israel. In 1943, so this is only five years before the founding of the state, they made a rule that anyone who espoused Zionist ideals is not allowed to be a member. And right then, the, there was a schism in this, in the synagogue, and Emmanuel was formed by the people who wanted to be Zionist. But reformed Jewry was uh, anti, well, at least at the beginning, of course, uh, today's a different story, but they were very anti-Zionism. And of course, there was religious opposition to Zionism. Like we said earlier, the religious Jews couldn't believe that people like Herzl and his ilk would be the ones bringing about the Messiah or anything that resembles going back to Israel and rebuilding. To them, it was unthinkable. Uh, plus, there was another fear that Zionism would prove a substitute or would be presented as a substitute or a redefinition of what it means to be a Jew. People will say, well, I'm a Zionist. I don't need to have Torah. And unfortunately, this was a well-founded fear uh, because we know a lot of the immigrants that came to Israel, especially from places like Yemen and the Arabian or the Muslim countries, they came to Israel and the Zionists told them, listen, you're in Israel now. You don't need to have those peos or observe. That's only when you were surrounded by non-Jews, you needed to, to, to exhibit your Judaism. But once you're in Israel, everyone's Jewish. You don't need to have those sidelocks or, you know, maintain that fidelity to those ancient pride. Now you're in Israel. And that, in fact, this year, um, the, the story of the children of Yemen, uh, to which those terrible terrible things were done, was acknowledged by the state. And the state said this was a low point in our history. Regardless, once the state was founded, both sides really came together. The opposition very much waned. Uh, of course, uh, the reform today is very much pro-Israel, uh, whether or not all the Reformed Jews individually are is an open question. And similarly, on the, on the religious side, the religious opposition to the state is a very narrow band of the entire demographic. I would say today, most religious Jews are hopeful and pragmatic about the idea that this state can eventually turn into a fulfillment of the prophecies um, There are those that have the prayer on Shabbos, bless the state of Israel, the beginning of the sprouting of our redemption. Those are the ones who are convinced that the state of Israel is the beginning of the Messiah. Others are a little bit more dubious, but hopeful. And they say, bless the state of Israel, may it be the sprouting of our redemption. Well, let's participate. It. Let's be wary. Let's have keep our passports active. We may have to leave. This is not necessarily it. And there were compromises. There were compromises made. I think Zionism is a great story of, of Jewish unity, where different Jews from different backgrounds and different cultures and different levels of observance came together and united with a common goal, And this was manifest once the state was founded as well. You know, Ben Gurion, he cut deals with everyone, made sure everyone's happy. Because there was a great risk that these camps would go to war. There'd be a civil war in the state, which of course would be disastrous. But they worked hard to accommodate that everyone should know this is our state, this is one state with one army, and we're all in this together. Yes, we may disagree, we have our disagreements, but let's agree on the state and let's try to accommodate everyone. For example, from the beginning, they had separate religious schools that are state-funded. They mandated that all government, army, and public kitchens would all have kosher food. Shabbos was an official day of rest, actually, in Israel. Under the law, it's forbidden to open your business on Shabbos. Uh, As to the adjudication of that is an open question. And also, the determining of marriage and divorce and personal status questions like converts and things like that was left for the rabbis. And they, they carved out a room for the religious Zionists to be comfortable in the land. When they actually had the proclamation of statehood, they made another compromise where they said, placing our trust... Bitsuri Israel with the Rock of Israel. Doesn't mention God, but we know that in Jewish prayer, God is sometimes called the Rock of Israel. So they put that in. Jews who don't want to accept it, they say, well, the Rock of Israel refers to our army or whatever. Today, there's a lot of internal disagreements about policy issues in Israel that really stem from these various and even opposing sometimes ideals of what Israel ought to be. Uh, for example, negotiating with Palestinians, S- the settlements. You see one faction in Israel that looks at it as one of the most important mitzvahs in the Torah to establish sovereignty over every square inch. And These are the people for a hundred years already. What they're talking about is religious Zionism. And therefore, part of their doctrine is we can't forfeit a, one tiny it's, – it's forbidden by Torah law. We have to settle the land and not relinquish any part of it. People living in Gaza and Hebron, places that are terribly dangerous, but they're saying this is our mitzvah. And then you have the quote-unquote Zionists who want to look at Israel as any other country. This is just a matter of convenience. We could have been in Uganda. We've been just as happy. And I would ask the question, does Zionism still exist? I would say it depends. For the most part, I would argue that the political Zion, the secular humanist Zionism is gone. It fizzled out. They wanted a state for practical purposes, a refuge for the Jews. We have it. It's over. Mission accomplished. What now? Well, now we could go to the United States and sell skin cream in malls. And you see this mass exodus of Jews, of Israelis, everywhere in the world. You go to see Israelis. What happened to Zionism? Well, Zionism, its mission is, is completed. And then you see the religious Jews who are swarming to Israel because to them, Zionism is still ongoing. It's about bringing about Messiah. It's about rebuilding the temple. It's about bringing all the Jews to Israel. Well, how do we do that? We have we're, we're one step, we have one check, one notch in our belt, but there's some more notches to go. I would conclude by looking kind of at the Torah's perspective on Israel. We don't look at Israel as being a mitzvah unto its own in isolation. In fact, my grandfather used to say, "How hey, come there's no mi- there's no blessing that we say every mitzvah? There's a blessing before you perform it. And there's no blessing before performing the mitzvah of living in Israel. Ostensibly, those that are living in Israel should say a blessing every day, thank you for to fulfilling the mitzvah of, of living in Israel. And the answer is, living in Israel in itself, that's not a mitzvah." That's a facilitating mitzvah because Israel is a spiritual place where you can do Torah better, you can do perform more mitzvahs. It's a place where hopefully we could have a temple and bring sacrifices. But just on its own to exist in Israel, that's not a mitzvah. That's a facilitating mitzvah. And I, I want to say ultimately, the story of Zionism and the unprecedented return uh, to our homeland is a story of Jewish unity, where Jews can come together. I would argue that it's not a finished product. We're you know we're we're on our way towards reaching the ultimate goal. We hope and pray that it will eventually culminate in the arrival of Messiah, the rebuilding of the temple, and there's still more action items on our list. For example, the reinstituting of Jewish law, um, and getting our shovels ready. Let's go and do what we can uh, to usher in the Messiah, and to actualize the dream of our nation for thousands of years.